I was just uh, reading, uh, looking at the news this morning and uh, reading about the fact that uh, in the last 72 hours or less, just this weekend, um, there were five, six, six deaths on Victorian roads of uh, young men under 25. Uh, real tragedy. And, and I'm sure there are people, uh, friends and family of those young men who are asking the question, if there's a God, where is he in all this? What, what, what does God have to do with this tragedy that I'm going through? What does, how does God relate to uh, the everyday nitty-gritty and the suffering and the pain that we go through? Uh, and not only them, probably the average person questions in their mind, well, what relevance is God? You know, they might know something of God from maybe going to a church school, maybe they went to Sunday school when they were, they were young, maybe they've, they've been to church and they've heard, uh, but, but probably the most common reason that I hear for people who say I no longer believe is really just, I don't, I don't see how God relates to everyday life. What's he got to do with my study, with my work? Uh, with my family, with my, with my struggles, with my problems, with my fears and my doubts. Um, I believe our passage this morning uh, addresses that, that big question that many people have. We see there were two, two parts to this reading. Uh, the, the encounter uh, of Jesus in his glory up on the mountain and then the encounter with an unclean spirit and his distressed father at the bottom of the mountain. Through the Bible, uh, we see people often having an encounter with the glory of God on mountaintops. Uh, if you know the Old Testament, you can probably think of some off the top of your head. In fact, it's most likely that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. It doesn't explicitly say it, but it describes how there were there was a spring in Eden and four rivers flowed from Eden to water the whole earth. So by implication, Eden, Eden must have been the highest place for the water to flow downhill. Um, and right through the story of the Old Testament, we see God encountering people on mountaintops. Um, why did God choose to reveal himself in that way, using a mountain? Um, we don't know. Uh, maybe he was uh, graciously uh, accommodating the people's perception that uh, God is in the heavens, so if I want to be close to God, the best place is to climb a mountain. Uh, that was the thinking not just for the Israelites, that was just the common worldview amongst all the nations. Um, any nation you go to, whatever shrines or temples they had were always on mountains. Probably the most famous mountain in the Bible is Mount Sinai where God came down onto the mountain and entered into a covenant relationship with uh, his people. Uh, Thunder and lightning and a dark cloud and Moses alone was able to go up onto the mountain uh, to talk with God and to receive the law 
which was the sign of the covenant. So Moses is on the mountain, the people are down the bottom and they're thinking he's been away for a long time, maybe he's not coming back. They got impatient and they said we need to, we need to uh, work out our own religion, we need to work it out ourselves and so they built a golden calf and they worshipped it and they said this is the Lord our God who brought us out of Egypt. Coming down from the mountain with the law inscribed on stone tablets, uh, Moses discovered them worshipping this idol which they claimed was the Lord and he smashed the tablets of the law and God's judgement came upon the people and he said to Moses, look, you take them, you take them into the promised land but I won't go with you because by by making this calf and pretending that it's me, they have disqualified themselves from this covenant that I'm entering into right now. Moses then went back to the mountain in order to intercede, to pray for the people. And the Lord graciously affirmed, I will go with you. It was never his intention to not go with them, he was actually wanting to bring Moses to the place of uh, confessing something about God's own nature, that God is faithful, that God has entered into a covenant with his people and he, he will not go back on that. So God showed Moses and showed the people that his grace was greater than their sin of idolatry. And it's this setting, Moses interceding for the Uh, the idolatrous unbelievers at the bottom of the mountain that he says Lord please show me your glory so the Lord put Moses in a hole in the rock he said you can't see my face no one can see my face and live you'll just see like the back of me as I pass by and the Lord passed the Lord in his glory passed by Moses And Moses actually did see the glory of the Lord, but not visibly with his eyes. He saw it as the Lord spoke to him. God showed his glory by speaking, and what he spoke was magnificent. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So Moses saw the glory of the Lord, but he saw by hearing the Lord speak to him. And what what grace this is. The Lord says, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and I forgive iniquity, transgression and sin. Even those people who have forsaken me, I've just brought them out of Egypt, I've shown my faithfulness to them and already they're worshipping a golden calf. I forgive them. That was the glory of the Lord. 600 years later, this same mountain is visited by another man, the prophet Elijah. Now Elijah's ministry was during the reign of King Ahab 
and Queen Jezebel. Uh, Ahab was king of the northern kingdom of Israel when the kingdoms after the kingdoms had split. He is considered one of the most evil kings of Israel. Uh, he made Baal worship the official religion of Israel. So it wasn't just like the early Israelites who said, this golden calf is the Lord. He said, forget the Lord, we're going to worship Baal. Uh, One Kings describes him as Ahab, who did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Elijah the prophet was sent to declare God's judgment upon Ahab and upon uh, Israel. And in the well-known confrontation with the prophets of Baal, uh, Baal was showed up to be a phony. He couldn't bring down fire from heaven and the Lord showed himself to be the one true God. However, this actually made things worse for Elijah. People didn't see that and say, oh, okay, well, let's worship the Lord then. People got angry. Uh, They turned against him. He had to flee for his life. And particularly Ahab's wife Jezebel said, "Uh, if I catch you, I will do to you a hundred times worse than what you did to these prophets of Baal. So he fled, he headed south, and eventually he found himself at Mount Horeb, which is another name for the same mountain, Mount Sinai. He got to the mountain and he hid himself in the hole, in a hole in the rock. He was living in a cave and he camped there. Moses was hoping, uh, Elijah was hoping for a Moses-like experience. God's people were embroiled in idolatry and like Moses, he was just the one man left. Maybe that's why he went for this mountain. He thought, if I could go to the mountain of the Lord, the mountain where God first uh, appeared to his people, maybe I can get God to do something to solve this problem. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. Very graciously, the Lord makes his glory known to Elijah on the mountain. Behold, the Lord passed by. That same phrase, the Lord passed by Moses, now the Lord passes by Elijah. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now those words, uh, the sound of a low whisper, uh, literally are the sound of a tiny silence. 
Uh, we might talk about uh, a deafening silence when you, you're hearing something really loud and all of a sudden it stops and it, the gap that follows seems quieter than quietness itself by contrast. And that was Elijah's experience, the the roar of the wind and the earthquake and the fire, then all of a sudden it stopped. Silence. And he thought, the Lord wasn't in those, he wasn't in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, where is he? And so there's this silence as he's been prepared to hear the Lord speak with an audible voice. He was... uh, the Lord was preparing him to hear so he wouldn't be distracted by anything else around him. So these two pivotal encounters with the glory of God on the top of a mountain that involve the Lord's presence being made known, his glory being revealed as he speaks to his prophets. So with this background, let's go back to Peter, James and John on the mountain with Jesus. Jesus' appearance is transformed. His clothes are shining, uh, whiter, a white that is whiter than white and they see Elijah and Moses on the mountain talking with Jesus. What does this signify? What, what was it that Jesus wanted them to see, to understand from this vision. Now what's not happening here is that uh, Jesus is not having a Moses-like or an Elijah-like experience on the mountain. It's not saying, well, Jesus is number three after Moses and Elijah. He's another prophet in the line who also will encounter the glory of God on the mountain and then be able to speak to the people. See, they're not witnessing Jesus having an encounter with the glory of the Lord. Rather, what they are seeing is Moses and Elijah having an encounter with the glorious Jesus, with the glory of the Lord in Jesus. It's as if they're they're seeing Jesus in the present, but they're also seeing back through the passages of time and they're seeing Moses' encounter with the Lord on Mount Sinai. And they're seeing Elijah's encounter with the Lord on Mount Horeb, the same mountain. And the one who Moses encountered and the one who Elijah encountered were none other than Jesus himself. Or we could say the Jesus that Peter, James and John knew as they walked along the roads of Galilee together was none other than than the Lord who had revealed his glory to Moses and Elijah centuries before. So that explains the description of Jesus' appearance. He's transformed, his his clothes are, are white and shining, just like Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. He sees... Uh, The Ancient of Days seated on the throne and he says his attire was white like snow. His throne was ablaze with fire. Uh, That's what they're seeing. They are seeing the glory of the Lord embodied in the person of Jesus. I mentioned last week that uh, the appearance of Moses and Elijah points us to the fact that Jesus is the fulfilment 
of the law embodied in Moses and of the prophets embodied in Elijah. But it's much more than that. It's not just the fulfilment of a prophecy or a promise. Jesus fulfills Moses and Elijah because he is the one who was there who spoke to Moses and Elijah and he has been speaking uh, even before Moses and right through history. uh, Jesus is the one who has been speaking to his people. We shouldn't think that in the Old Testament it's the Father who spoke most of the time and then we get to the New Testament and we hear a lot of Jesus speaking and then maybe after the day of Pentecost it's the Holy Spirit. No, all three, Father, Son, Spirit, have been speaking in unison ever since the moment of creation. So Jesus could say, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his work. So Peter, James and John hear the Father speak from the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. All through history the Father has been saying, My beloved Son, listen to him. Psalm 2, kiss the Son, lest he be angry. The Father has always been pointing people to the Son uh, to hear what the Son has to say. Moses and Elijah were called to listen to the voice of God as he reaffirmed his goodness and faithfulness to his people. Peter, James and John, and we with them, because we are drawn into this experience, uh, we should imagine ourselves to be there with these three men as they're seeing this happen. We likewise are called to listen to the voice of God as it comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now I don't think we should make too much about Peter's strategy to build tents for everyone on the mountaintop because as the text says, Peter didn't know what to say. He had no idea what was going on here. We're told simply he, he didn't understand what was happening because he still had to see everything in light of the cross and the resurrection. In both Moses and Elijah's scenarios, the Lord shows incredible grace and mercy towards his people who had sunk into the depths of sin and idolatry. He continued to treat them as his people, even though they had disqualified themselves and deserved to be cursed and to be cut off. And in both cases, we might be led to ask the question, how could God show mercy just like that? in the face of their idolatry, their sin. How could he seem to just put aside the people's idolatry and continue with his favour upon them? Well, the big question that anyone really needs to ask after reading the Bible's story and see God's ongoing patience with the persistent evil and sin of humanity is actually, well, how could it be fair that God forgives anyone? How could it be that he doesn't just pour his judgement upon everyone? How could it be that God saves and forgives anyone, given the depths of sin and rebellion to which we sink? And Jesus is the answer to that question. 
This is how God can forgive anyone and not judge everyone. As Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to bear the guilt for human sin and idolatry. He bore the guilt of those first Israelites at Mount Sinai who were worshipping. That's how the Lord could say, I forgive. Because thousands of years in the future, his son would go to the cross and die for the guilt of their idolatry. That's how he could forgive the Israelites at the time of Elijah for their worship of Baal because Jesus had borne their idolatry in the cross. Any person who was forgiven and restored in the Old Testament was forgiven on the basis of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice that was yet to come for them. So, they come down off the mountain and they are rudely jolted back to the harsh reality of life. A boy possessed by an evil spirit from when he was an infant. His father in great distress and anguish because of this. And his disciples helpless. They can't, they can't seem to drive this spirit out. Jesus had sent out his disciples uh, to cast out evil spirits and to heal the sick. He sent them into the villages and they'd seen, seen God do amazing things through them. Yet in this case, they, they, they're helpless. They can't help the boy or his father. And take note of Jesus' response to this. O faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? Does that sound a bit like Elijah when he said the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword and I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away? Does it sound a bit like Moses who faced the people's idolatry at the very moment of receiving the law and he as one man goes up on the mountain to intercede for this unbelieving group of people. Moses and Elijah were called to return to the people that the Lord would be with them by his grace despite their sin. In the face of our unfaithfulness, the Lord remains faithful. And the revelation of his glory on the mountain was an affirmation, not that he's distant and inaccessible, but that he is actually present with his people. What did the vision of the transfigured Jesus on the mountain have to do with this boy and his father and the disciples and the crowds at the bottom of the mountain? Well, everything. Because in Jesus we see the glory of God embodied, but he doesn't stay up on the mountain, remote and inaccessible. He comes down the mountain and he enters into our human situation, into the mess of our lives, to to be with us, to walk with us. Jesus' glory didn't diminish when he came down the mountain. It was just less visible with the eyes, but the same Lord of glory who stood on the mountain transformed, shining 
in brightness was the same Lord of glory who stood there in front of this man and his son. And in this encounter that this boy and his father has with Jesus, we see three statements about faith. We see a verdict about faith. We see a gracious call to faith and we see a sinner's response of faith. So having just heard the father's affirmation of him as his beloved son and the call to listen to him, Jesus returns down to a people who are not listening to him, who don't recognise him as the son of God and who consequently are faithless. This is a faithless generation because they're they're seeing Jesus, they're hearing him, but they're not coming to the conclusion he must be the Christ, the Son of God. They're not, they're not receiving him, they're not believing in him. And faith is not mere intellectual belief in a set of facts. Biblical faith is trust. It is trust in the person of God, not intellectual belief in facts, but trust in the person In the words of Peter, in his uh, first letter, he talks about entrusting my soul to my faithful creator and continuing to do good. That's faith, entrusting my soul to my creator because I know he is faithful. So it doesn't depend on my faith or my ability to believe. He has shown himself to be faithful and so I can trust him. And to have faith or trust in the Father, in in our Creator, means listening to his Son. A lot of people will say, I I believe in God. I believe there's someone out there. Maybe they'll even say, and you know, maybe maybe they're looking out for me in some way. But they tend to say it in in a way that implies, okay, so I believe in God, so I don't need organised religion. I don't need someone to tell me what to believe or how to live my life. But believing that God exists is just one little aspect of faith, one tiny part of faith. It's not true faith until we have entrusted ourselves to our faithful creator. So, as I said, it means that our life isn't based on our ability to believe but on his ability to remain faithful to us. So understanding this about faith helps us to understand the next statement. Jesus says all things are possible for one who believes or one who has faith. Now we need to see that Jesus firstly is speaking about himself here. The boy's father has suggested the possibility that Jesus has the the power or ability to uh, save his boy from this unclean spirit. And since Jesus' disciples had been unsuccessful, maybe he's thinking, well, is Jesus going to be any better? He's their teacher. He's the one who taught them to do this. If he, He couldn't have taught them very well if they can't do it, so is Jesus actually going to be able to help us here? He uses the word dune, which comes uh, from the word 
dynamos. From, it, from that we get our word dynamo or dynamite. It's a word for power or ability. He is hoping that Jesus is a powerful man who has the ability to drive this spirit out of his son. But Jesus' response shifts the focus from power to faith. If, I, if you can, he kind of says, what, what do you mean by that statement? If you can, if you have power. He says, no, it's not about power. He says, it's only possible for the one who has faith, who has trust, who has confidence in God. Jesus is not a powerful man. He is the son who trusts his father. And all that he does is the father working through him. He heals, he casts out spirits by the power of the Spirit. He's not depending on his own power or ability. Uh, Ultimately, Jesus is the one true man of faith. And it's because he's come to do his Father's will and he trusts his Father, how could he not be able to help? The one who truly trusts God is able to, to help the situation. But it's not just a call to faith for those who are watching. Uh, it, it is a call, sorry. I should edit that bit out of the recording. It's a call not just to say Jesus is the one who trusts the Father. It's a call for us also to trust the Father. To believe is not to express a self-sufficiency or ability in ourselves, but is to confess our inability, our insufficiency in ourselves. Um, you may remember the, the movie Prince of Egypt and uh, the famous theme song from that movie, uh, When You Believe, uh, which goes something like, who knows what miracles you can achieve. When you believe, somehow you will. You will when you believe. And what that song is saying is, well, just work it up inside yourself and you, you can have the ability to achieve wonderful things if you just believe. The question is, well, what is it that you're believing in? And I think the song really says, well, believe in yourself, your own ability. No, faith is a cry of utter dependence upon the Father, that he has the ability. If anything happens for good, it's his work, not ours. And so he deserves the glory, not us. So the Father calls us to put our trust in him as our faithful creator. And we might say, well, God, prove yourself then. If you want us to trust you, what have you done that makes you trustworthy, worthy of your trust? And he says, my beloved son, listen to him. And when you hear him speak and when you see him take that road to the cross and willingly lay down his life, then you will know I am worthy of your trust. Thirdly, we see the response of the man. I believe, help my unbelief. Grammatically, it's a contradiction. He uses exactly the same words. I believe... Help me, because I don't believe. He believes, but he doesn't believe. He's saying, 
I find there is a trust in my heart but I know that the origin of that trust cannot be from me because left to myself there's nothing. It can't come from me, it has to come from God. It has to come from you, Jesus, if I'm going to continue to believe. Faith is a gift of God and so the simplest cry of faith is to confess that we don't have faith. We need this man of faith. We need the one who has trusted his father impeccably and fully to give us this gift so that we too can trust the father. We need to see that our primary need is not to have God solve our problems, although we can know he has compassion on us and wants us to bring all of our needs, big and small, to him. Our biggest need is for a heart that trusts him and a heart and ears that are willing to listen to his son. Sometimes he gives us that trust and that faith by dealing with our problems and he shows himself to be compassionate and good and to work things out for good. At other times he doesn't solve our problem. And at that time he's calling us to put our trust in him despite what our circumstances are saying. This book arrived in the the mail just the other day, actually after I've prepared this sermon. It's called Gospel Fluency, Speaking the Truths of Jesus into the Everyday Stuff of Life. And the first chapter is called, Everyone is an Unbeliever. He says, I slip in and out of believing God's word about me and trusting in his work for me. Jesus gave his life to make me a new creation. He died to forgive me of my sins and change my identity from sinner to saint, from failure to faithful, from bad to good and even righteous and holy. But I forget what he has said. I forget what he has done for me. And sometimes it isn't forgetfulness. Sometimes it's just plain unbelief. I know these things, I just don't believe them. I'm an unbeliever, not every moment of course, but I have these moments. Every morning when we wake up, we need to say, Lord, I believe and trust in you for this day, but I know that in the day ahead, I will face many challenges to that trust. I will hear many voices telling me to to trust in others or even to trust in myself. I'll be tempted to interpret my experiences as reasons not to believe. So, Lord, help my unbelief. And that's that's the mustard seed of faith that Jesus says just a mustard seed of faith can move a mountain because it's simply saying, Father, I want to live this day, I want to live this life entirely dependent and trusting in you. Let's pray. Father, we just simply pray this morning along with this Father. I believe, help overcome my unbelief. Amen.
Let's finish with our closing song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Thank you.